0: As a professional opera soprano, you grew up perfecting a high art form, both incredibly difficult and technically precise. But when you wandered off stage down a dusty Mexican street and into a group of friendly kids, perhaps you found your true calling, and that maybe the highest form of art exists in the heart. It was the beginning of your lifelong quest for Duende. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of Exchange Stories.
1: As much as I really, really admire politicians and diplomats that are out there doing the hard work every day, what I've gotten to see firsthand is, you know, when a politician gets up in front of a group, the group generally thinks he's asking for something. He or she is going to ask for a check maybe or my vote or what have you. But When an artist gets up in front of a group, generally people think they're going to give us something. They're gonna give us a song, they're gonna show us their painting, maybe give us a piece of their soul. And that is why it's so critical for us to be working together. That's why I believe the artists should be at the table next to the politicians, the diplomats, because it's very powerful when you can approach a group and say, let's let's come together, let's let's do this not just at the level of the intellect, but at the level of the heart and soul. To me the importance of culture is that it is through culture that we can examine and contemplate and perhaps even change our belief systems. That's what culture is ultimately. It's, it's a way of thinking, it's a belief system. And I think if you don't have artists as a part of that conversation, it's very, very difficult to build trust with communities. It is ultimately about coming together, creating a common belief system and a common way of thinking that two parties that might be different in their thinking can agree on and forging a path forward.
0: This week, helping by listening, courage and vulnerability, and creating moments of authenticity. Join us on a journey from the United States around the world and not being afraid to say the word love. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United
2: States, Warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. And That's what we call
1: cultural exchange, I don't know, I I also really thought it was cool to have like a powerful voice, right? Because opera singing is without a microphone most of the time, so it's like, Oh my God. It's like we try to make our voices really loud, right? So like, do you guys want me to show you? Yeah. Okay, so like, I could just sort of go like, That's like kind of like a light sound, but if I were to do opera style, I'd do like, like I would like cut through and make like a loud sound. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you guys all want to just like really quick pretend that you're opera singers? Yeah. So let's just do do one note and do it like really loud, but pretty. Pretty? Okay, one, two, three.
2: Oh, you guys are so good. (laughs)
1: My name is Carla Derlikov canalis and I am a mezzo-soprano by training, classical opera singer. Uh, but I think in the last few years, I would define myself more as an artist, entrepreneur, and social advocate who aims to use the arts for positive social change. I am the founder of the Canalis Project and still an active singer and advocate. I started my um, experience through the State Department programming in 2005 and have had the good fortune of going on programs pretty much since then. So I guess 14 years total to countries such as Mexico, Chile, uh, China, quite a bit, and Japan. Actually, I would say that this program, the Arts Envoy program, has been the single most significant uh, professional experience that i've had as an opera singer because it's really connected me to who i am my mother is mexican my father is bulgarian and i was born in michigan and spent most of my childhood going back and forth to mexico having dual citizenship and speaking spanish and actually some bulgarian as my first languages and then learning english in school i sort of describe this as being born into a state of cultural confusion. Um, I had these two very, very different cultures to learn about from my parents. And then of course, a new one to assimilate to that of Americana. Most of my life, my number one desire was really just to fit in. And particularly in Michigan, that was a challenge. I had this funny last name, I was a tall kid, I kind of had an accent, and the same applied when I went to Mexico and I was in school in Mexico. Um, You know, I was a foot taller than all of the other kids, had a Slavic last name, and was still trying to figure out a lot of the idiosyncrasies of Mexican culture. I think it was a natural fit for me to dive into the world of music because, you know, singing in particular has been the marriage of my two passions, this this love of language that I grew up with. And of course, music itself, melody and, and the strong power of that to transport you to a world where culture or identity or passports, they don't matter, uh, what really matters is is emotion. That's the unifier for us as human beings is that we all have this tremendous capacity to feel deep emotion and music allows us an opportunity to explore that. So I think of the universal language as being that of, of feelings rather than music, but I see music as the vehicle for that. biggest role model as a kid was Carmen, was this character that was Latina and just so strong. And I didn't really understand, you know, her being sexy, but I I definitely thought, wow, she is cool. And I want to be like her. So that was my goal. And I kind of got to do just that. But of course, you know, I found myself then in my early 20s, still with these questions of where do I belong? And what can I do now with this musical training? What is my voice as an individual? What can I do with it? One of my my biggest mentors, he actually very kindly put me in touch with the cultural affairs people in Mexico City. Of course, I had been to Mexico my whole life, but this was the first time that I got to go and see populations that weren't my family. We went to the state of Campeche, to the capital city, Everyone was kind of taking a chance on this this program and this project and thinking, what is this opera singer going to do here in this rather small community that had never had an opera singer? And as I was walking the streets of Campeche, I remember distinctly hearing these children's voices kind of going and following that into this this alley and just seeing these kids that were playing with nothing. And within 30 minutes, we were just all singing and laughing and playing games.
2: (laughs) ¶¶
1: The joy of singing is that it is free. You don't need to buy an instrument. And we all have access to this. I went back to the folks from State Department. I said, what What if we do something with these kids? And they said, okay, great. What do you mean? And we kind of put together this little three-week camp with these kids. That culminated in this concert, which many of their parents came to. And as I found out then, many of these kids did not have parents. They were actually orphaned kids. You know, this really was the first experience that got me thinking about the role that music can play, helping get them engaged in education and in their own creativity. Um, And I'm very proud to say that, that that small group of kids, you know, we ended up forming a choir and within a year, I believe they opened for Andrea Bocelli and a few months after that, they were at the White House, winning the coming up taller award. That was my initiation into this program where I saw directly the power one voice can have. Um, And in my case, I was just really fortunate to turn that corner and met those kids. And now see that many of them have gone to college and so forth. This was in 2005. So it got me hooked on this idea of What can we do as artists to use our voices literally and figuratively to promote positive social impact and change? I think the part that was so touching to me were the hugs and the physical contact. You know, it's interesting because I think there are a lot of stigmas toward opera singing that I didn't even really understand. I was drawn to opera because I thought, wow, the human voice can make this loud sound that's beautiful and there's no microphone. Like, how does that work? And I remember singing for the first time for the kids and seeing on their faces that same questioning and excitement that I had as a kid when I first heard opera, like, wait, wait, how do you do that? Are you an alien? Like, what's happening here? You know, just that curiosity that was sparked resulted in this, this bond where like, they felt yeah, I've got a voice too. Teach me how to do that. How can I sing and how can I make those sounds? And and this this connection that was not an intellectual one, it was not an academic one, it was a visceral one. It was really about like, how do I use my body to do that really, really cool thing that you can do? And I think as such, there was this, this physicality to it that just transcended any language and was not just about the sound itself and, and getting the kids to sing unabashedly and just express the their emotion in that way, but also the, the comfort that came with their physicality to hug me, for me to hug them also. There was sort of this barrier that was broken with something that was so intrinsically human as the human voice and this connection that just allowed us, I think, to, to leap over many of the layers of convention that we put in society um, and just really kind of get to the heart and soul of human contact very quickly. One of the things that I've learned so much through this work is about the, the power of the human voice to transcend those, those social conventions. And to me, this was even more apparent in countries like Japan and China, where I didn't have the advantage of speaking the language in Latin America. I- it was certainly easier because Spanish is my first language. But China in particular, the first trip that I made there was, was quite daunting because I thought, how on earth am I going to connect? There's a different language and there's also a different musical style and tradition. And I was very aware of coming in as an opera singer with such a strong Western tradition to my style of singing. It was really a moment where I, I went inward and thought to myself, okay what is this supposed to be about? This is supposed to be about exchange. And that word has stayed with me very much because I think in any opportunity for for growth, for learning, for love, I will be as bold as to use that word, there has to be true exchange. It can't just be about forcing someone to listen to you. And many times in the Western tradition, we get on stage and You know, we just say, okay, you sit there and I'm going to scream these notes at you. Um, But the real moments of beauty are a simple exchange where it goes both ways. And in thinking about that, particularly getting ready for the first China trip, I thought, there's so much I don't know here. I know nothing about Chinese opera. I know nothing about Chinese language. I don't understand how they make those sounds, what's involved in their musical tradition. And I wanted to allow myself to be guided by those questions. I think that for me has been one of the most important relationships because actually you know now 10 years later i am totally hooked on chinese culture i didn't think i would be able to necessarily relate to it it was so foreign to me and i have you know made it a point to go back as often as possible to china i study chinese every day i just have really had this passion for chinese culture And it it brings me back to that point that, you know, ultimately we are all the same. We are all trying to express our emotion and our humanity and better understand it. And music is a tool for that, however that musical style may be. So, you know, some of the most important experiences for me, for instance, on that first trip was um, I got to do a, a joint concert with a Chinese opera singer. And she would sing a song, and I would sing a song, and then we did a song together in Chinese, and she was so incredibly patient and kind with me as I tried to fumble through that language. You know, those those relationships have stayed with me to this day, 10 years later, so I'm very grateful.
2: (laughs) ¶¶
1: One of the most special trips for me was a trip that I got to take with my longtime pianist and best friend, uh, Justin Snyder. We met in college, and he's a a wonderful accompanist. You know, many times when I go abroad, of course, I'm just going abroad, and I might do master classes or work with a local pianist, but in this case, we'd actually prepared a program of American repertoire, and it it was really quite wonderful in that it Gone through a lot of the history of the United States and and the musical styles, and so we we were so focused on those elements, and we were going into really really rural communities in China, like no, no cities anyone had ever heard of. There certainly were no Starbucks. Nobody spoke English, and you would not find a fork anywhere. It was you know purely chopsticks and and tea, and it was awesome. We both loved that about it. One thing that really kind of surprised me on that trip. So Justin is is gay and very openly so. And we hadn't really thought a lot about that element in China. And I remember concert after concert after the concerts, like all these girls would line up outside of his dressing room to say hi to him. And, you know, I always thought that that was that was sweet and cute. And I watched the way he navigated those conversations. So beautifully so openly and with this huge smile on his face like i know i'm actually married but i'd love to go shopping with you guys if you want to go tomorrow you know and the girls would be like oh and you could tell the disappointment was there for like 10 seconds and then be like yeah let's go to lunch and not just the girls but the boys and i think especially because we were in such rural communities It was really kind of interesting to see the reaction, you know, some of the conversations that he got to have with those young people about his own journey. And it always ended up being like exactly the right thing to do.
2: tight shoe and have a
1: I look at the lineage of American artists who have been at the heart of cultural diplomacy and I feel so proud of my country for what they've done to promote that and of the opportunities that I've had to follow in their footsteps. And, you know, I think specifically about folks like Carmen Miranda, or of course, Louis Armstrong, the list goes on and on, not just the work that they did as artists, but the results of that work. I see those results every day. And that when I travel, I do feel like American culture is certainly up there as one of its greatest exports. You know, that, Is a huge gift, but it's also a big responsibility to not just impose, you know, our style and our music, but to really try to learn from the other the other style, the other countries as much as possible. I think that's that's the most important part is the exchange. What I've learned the most in my travels is that it really isn't about the technical perfection. And it's not even about the Western classical standard. It's about truth and authenticity. And those moments of authenticity are the ones I think that pull at my heartstrings anyway more than anything else. And I've seen that certainly in folk music, in traditional music, in the courage that it might take a young artist or a non-trained artist to come forward and say, I want to share this song with you, or I want to play this piece for you. It's always kind of this fine line of vulnerability to share what's in your heart, but also courage to speak up and be willing to do that in front of another human being. And I think it really has made me rethink my own life. I had spent hours and hours and hours working on raising my soft palate in a certain way to get the perfect ah vowel on a high note to, you know, fill an opera house. And I kind of realized at a certain point, okay, I can spend like two or three hours today in the practice room doing that. Or I could take those two or three hours and go into a disadvantaged community and just sing some songs. And it doesn't matter if the soft palette is perfect. What's gonna matter is the open heart and the, the connection. And I would say even to a step further, as much as I, I adore the craft of opera and, and still am enthralled by that magic that happens, I realized too that in order to connect with people, it's important to accept other styles of singing. And I, I've now become very curious about other styles, pop, Broadway. I guess you could say more casual styles of singing and have sort of tried to to grow my own vocal training in those ways, partially for a curiosity, but I think mostly out of a desire to connect to people in a way that might be more authentic. And I really find that there's so much to be learned from artists that have done that from the beginning, certainly many of whom I've admired who who are American, like Bob Dylan or Patti Smith or I'll throw in a Canadian, Leonard Cohen. For me, when I listen. To their music, it's it's very much about just connecting on a human level, and it doesn't have any operatic elements. So, you know, having an openness about other other ways of communicating is is super important. And I've learned to value that very much on my travels.
2: Dicen que por las noches... Namaseleva mas lleva el puro yoar dicen que no comea la mas lleva el puro tomar cuando el mismo
1: lo a One of the interesting things for me has been this this journey that I've gotten to go on through the character of Carmen. And, you know, as I mentioned, it was my dream as a little girl to, to sing this role. I used to steal my mother's skirts and put them on as like a four or five year old. And I would dress one brother up as the bull and the other was a bullfighter. And I would just run around playing Carmen. And, you know, when I when I got to do it, it was such a dream come true. But it's interesting because I think that that characters sort of stayed as a vehicle for me in many other ways. More recently, I was doing a Carmen production, worked with a director, and he kept saying to me, más Duende. He was a Spanish director. And I thought, what is this word Duende? I speak Spanish. I don't know anything about this. So lo and behold, I Google it. And Duende, as I've learned, is, is the opposite of technical perfection. It's all about soul and authenticity and like facing your fears and just giving it your whole body, heart, you know, everything that's in your guts and and putting it there on the stage. And this has sort of led me into a whole nother area, but essentially the, the man who introduced this word, Spanish playwright Lorca influenced Patti Smith very much, Leonard Cohen, Bob Dylan. His fascination was folk music. And he said, that's where you find it. You find it in... You know, the flamenco singer who's singing at three AM at the bar. And I guess that's that's the thing for me. And and as a arts envoy for a State Department, when I get to go to the different countries, that's that's what I'm looking for. And I've seen that Duende, that Spanish word, all over the world now. And ultimately it's it's a human concept, it's not a Spanish one. So that's the thing, much more than opera technical perfection. It's it's the Duende. I've seen certain threads and certainly more so in the last few years, some of which are very painful. I've seen in underserved communities consistently and throughout the world, a lot of pain and a sense of hopelessness and and lack of being heard. It's an interesting juxtaposition because while I, I, I sense this and I've seen it, I also see that within those communities, there's such love and camaraderie and kinship, but I would say a general lack of faith in the system, in institutions. And that can result, you know, certainly from my coming in as an outsider, in some trepidation, in some fear, you know, I and I can understand that from their perspective. Why would they want to come and hear a Western-trained opera singer, you know, that would make no sense this is just kind of a a small specific way of looking at a much bigger problem which is how can we at large connect with communities that feel like they have been failed by the system by government by larger institutions and it's something i think about a lot um, because again my my training is sort of I'm going to stand here and sing and you're going to listen and there's times you're going to clap and there's this structure. I think we need to break the structure first and foremost and it's not so much about having folks sit and listen whether it's again to to politicians or to an artist it's about a dialogue it's about exchange and first and foremost it's about my role coming in and, and hopefully going to those communities and saying I want to listen to you. You matter. I want to learn from you. And I really mean that because, you know, at the end of the day, I've looked at my life and thought, okay, what, what am I doing here? I, you know, I can go and sing at the opera houses and that's going to be for a certain demographic. And that's cool. A lot of my colleagues do that. I've been trained to do that and I have done it. But I think I realized at a certain moment that I'm not really interested in doing what has been done before. I want to get out there and really kind of use my life to make a difference in the world. And it sounds aspirational, but hopefully to make the world a better place. And I think the way that I can best do that with the skills I have right now is to help and facilitate these connections. If I have the opportunity to go into a community, be it in the US or abroad, that is a lesser served community, a lower income community, I come from a community like that. I understand that. It's my responsibility, first and foremost, to listen and to try to somehow create trust. Trust is not given. I often think of trust as a currency. You know, you just, there's no reason someone should come and hear me sing and there's trust and it's done. Why, because I have credentials of places I've sung? No, trust is earned. And I think there's that thing that we can't quite put into words, but you feel when someone comes on stage or when someone goes into the room and you feel an openness, you feel like they care. And for me, if I can if I can use my position to go into the communities, to listen, to carry their stories with me, that's the work I can do to help. And I take that first and foremost as my biggest job, my biggest responsibility. tremendous amount of hope in humanity. I at the end of the day I think people are good. I think people want to be good. I see that. I see that every single day and people helping each other, people being willing to open their hearts, their homes, their resources to helping one another and I've seen extraordinary examples of that. Certainly, first and foremost, on my travels as an arts envoy, countless hundreds of instances where people in these remote communities where I've gotten to go and sing, well, give me literally the jewelry they're wearing, the scarf that they, they have on, they'll try to give me these things as a token of thanks, which of course I, I can't accept, but it's this point of generosity and ultimately, of love, you know. I think that that's that's the biggest thing is we have to remove the stigma, the taboo associated with that word, and start to think of that as as the most powerful tool that we ultimately have as human beings. <laughs> I'm always really touched that it just seems like anytime I've gotten to go anywhere, people are so excited and happy to to host me or to meet me or to you know hear a concert. And I think there is an innate curiosity that exists abroad about a new experience, a new possibility. And that's what I mean about the hope. Like, If we can encourage that and embody that more and live our lives more that way, that's powerful. And I never take that for granted. I think following up on that with conversations and just really trying to take that to the next level. I've stayed in touch with so many of the people that I've gotten to meet, seen many of them, you know, go off to college or or have children and, you know, been able to help many of them along the way also. And certainly they've... They've helped me grow as an artist. That's really beautiful. I've also conversely seen instances that were really hard where I thought, hmm, I don't know if this is gonna work out. And each and every single time they've turned around. So I have a lot of hope in humanity. I talk about it all the time because, again, I think it's just the most special, important work I've gotten to do as an artist. And as much as it's brought me the most thought-provoking experiences and shaped what I do today and starting a not-for-profit because I wanted more experiences and I didn't want to always depend on the State Department, I wanted to enhance the work that y'all are doing and and find other ways to carry it forward in addition to. But on a very personal note, when I started my first trip in 2005, just received my master's degree, and the truth was I was just starting to find my voice as a Mexican, Bulgarian, American. Just in in all of these boxes that we're talking about now, I'd always check the other box, and I didn't really know what my voice was. And over the course of these 14 years now, I feel like this Experience is what's helped me not only to find my voice, but to have the courage, the confidence to try to use my voice and use it loudly to explore these issues of identity and culture and to amplify the voices of so many who don't necessarily get heard and really promote the positive social impact that I think all of us artists want to see in the world. This would not have happened for me if it weren't for this opportunity. And I don't feel often like I've done much for others. I feel like the opportunity has done a lot for me. So I'm just incredibly grateful and feel a deep sense of commitment to spending the rest of my life working in the way that I have learned through my Arts Envoy experience.
2: So now.
0: This week, Carla Canellas reminisced about her many years spent as an ECA arts envoy. For more about ECA cultural and other programs, check out eca.state.gov. We also encourage you to subscribe to 2233. You can do so wherever you find your podcasts. Leave us a review while you're at it, if you would be so kind. And we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Photos of each week's interviewee and complete episode transcripts can be found at our webpage at eca.state.gov slash 2233. Special thanks this week to Carla for her time, her talent, and her passion to make this world a better place. I did the interview and edited this segment. All of the music that you heard featured Carla's amazing voice, including excerpts of O Mio Fernando from the opera La Favorita by Gaetano Donizetti, Habanera, from the opera Carmen, by George Bizet. Lob des Verstandes from the opera Deskneben Wunderhorn, by Gustav Mahler. And I should mention that the version you heard was performed by Carla in China, with the Chinese National Symphony Orchestra. Gold Tooth Blues, Rukuku Paloma, and Algundia. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian, by How the Night Came, and the end credit music is... Two Pianos by Todd Geerlius. Until next time.